will all kind of tie together, and it will build off of our lesson this morning. And I'm, uh, I'll am i say a little bit about it, but I won't uh, repeat myself too much. Don't want to waste too much time here. But it will it'll build off of our lesson because I have a kind of a different angle from this passage that I'd like us to consider. And like I said, we'll come back and then discuss a couple things uh, from Acts 4 during our class. But this morning, we focused on the believer's prayer for boldness. And I, I asked Jeff to throw the slides back in this morning so that... Uh, a little bit of itself, if we're having some technical difficulties, and I said, gosh, Connor, if I draw these up, they're going to see them one way or the other. But uh, also, it just kind of refreshes our mind, keeps the scriptures up there for us to see when we're done. But this morning, we talked about the believer's prayer for boldness, how in the face of great opposition and great resistance, in this context of the fear of persecution, they brought a message of hope, and they brought works of healing. And so we, we mentioned specifically that these two go hand in hand, that their, that their message, even though the, the scribes and the Sadducees, even though they didn't like the message that they brought, they could not deny the works that the church was doing. And so we talked about that context of the, the opposition from those in the, the Jewish leadership, but the healing that they brought along with their message. And we talked about how the if we bring, even if we teach a message of the same message that is found in the Gospels, if we are only teaching with our words, our message will only be so effective if we are not actually demonstrating what Jesus' healing power looks like in our lives. And we also looked at the content of the church's prayer, how they prayed. And they prayed not to be delivered, not to be rescued, not to be uh, pulled from, but to actually be strengthened in this midst of temptation, and they how they were asked for boldness that they might continue to preach the gospel, and of course, we looked at the result or the consequence of their prayer that they were filled with the Spirit. At the end of the chapter says, and we see the examples of how their ministry flourished because of their indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, when we read that prayer in Acts chapter four, we actually see that they quote a scripture. Now specifically Psalm 2. And so what I'd like for us to do in our time here is read Psalm 2 in its full context and see what this might have to do with what's going on in the church in Acts 4. And so what, we'll kind of tie together what exactly it is that David is saying in Psalm 2 and what that has to do with the, the resistance and the persecution and the prayer for boldness that we see in Acts chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 2. And as I said, we'll read... The, the full length of Psalm 2 here and talk about some of the language and the, the imagery in it. So Psalm 2 beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the degree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. One of the things I 
loved about our Understanding the Bible series is we, we dug into a few of the Psalms and we talked about how the language in the Psalms, it, it seems very flowery and it seems very poetic and we're not always sure what to make of it. We talked about how it's always rich with, with symbols and references to other parts of Scripture. And when we read Psalm 2, what we see right away is, is loads of rich, what I would call messianic imagery. That is imagery who points to the Messiah, imagery that points to the anointed one, imagery that points to Christ. We see it starting there at the end when he says, Blessed are those who take refuge in the Son. And there's this mention of a holy kiss, which we actually see uh, often in those history books, uh, particularly in 1 Samuel, where it would accompany the anointing of a king. In 1 Samuel 10, when, when Samuel has chosen Israel's future king, he, he kisses him and pours oil on his head and proclaims him, uh, The Lord has anointed you over his inheritance. And so he says he has set you king over his inheritance. His inheritance, of course, is the people. And the psalmist here warns the kings of the earth, he says, to serve the Lord with fear. And he says, be, is to serve the, the begotten of the Lord, that same one he calls a son in verse 7. He says, the son will make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. You, you may recall, we've talked about this before, that that word for Gentile is actually literally read as the nations. And so in different translations, you'll see in the New Testament, sometimes render the same word Gentile, sometimes the nations. But this was just how the Jews referred to the rest of the world. So really, we could rightly read this psalm in a New Testament context and say that he has made the Gentiles his heritage. And when we see the psalm used in that kind of context, it actually, it's, a, it's backwards. It's the opposite from what the Jews would expect. But of course what you and I now here know, that the, that the covenant was not just for the people of God, but it was actually for all those, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, all those who believe. Daniel 7 writes very similarly. He says, the, the Son of Man will come and bring all nations, not just one nation, not just Israel and Judah, not just the twelve tribes, but he says he will bring all nations before the Lord God. Psalm thirty-three, twelve said, Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. Blessed is the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. But who are the chosen of God? Who are this people that he talks about? Well, if you've ever done a study in the New Testament, you would see that the bulk of Romans is actually a long argument that Paul makes that it is not just the Jews, but it is all those who put their faith in Christ. He demonstrates this throughout the entirety of the, the book, but especially the later chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And I just want to reference a couple verses there. We don't have time to get into all of it. But, but in Romans, Paul demonstrates that it's, it's not just the children of Abraham who belong to God, but it is all those who he calls the children of the promise. And Paul says the promise is not based on flesh, but it is based on faith. And we find that in Romans 9, 4 through 18. Romans 10, 4 said it is Christ, the anointed one who is the end of the law. Not, not, the, not the termination of the law, but the end is in the purpose of the law. The reason that we have the law. He says the, the, the anointed one is the end of the law for righteousness. To who? To everyone who believes. Paul says this righteousness is not based on flesh as the children of the circumcision were, but this righteousness is based on Faith, a faith that Paul says confesses with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in the heart that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9. And so when we see this here in Psalm 2, David, David rightly prophesies that all nations will be made an inheritance to the Lord. 
In that same line, he says that he says that the son, the begotten son, will possess the ends of the earth. You might notice if you've heard that phrase before that Jesus, when he's when he's speaking to his disciples before the ascension at the very beginning of Acts, he tells those who are gathered on the mountaintop, he says that you will be my witnesses to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, I'm sending you out not just to God's people, not just to the tribes of Israel, not to the sons of Abraham, but I'm sending you out even to the very ends of the earth. In that same verse, Jesus tells them, the Holy Spirit will come upon you with power when this happens, and that with the Spirit you will be witnesses of mine. And so what we see in Psalm 2 is a, a celebration of David's anointing as king of Israel, while at the same time a foreshadowing of the Son of the Lord who will be king over not just Israel, not just Jerusalem, but king over all kings. We talked about the different categories of psalms several weeks ago in our class, and, and Psalm 2 is what we would call a messianic or a kingship psalm. It celebrates and proclaims the kingship, not just of David over a physical kingdom, but the kingship of the Lord over all the earth. And of course, this term Messiah means the anointed, where we get our term for Christ. In Acts chapter 4, the church reads this psalm and they see this being played out before their very eyes. They see this as a prophecy that is being fulfilled in their time. That they're facing uh, opposition, as we talked about, from the Sanhedrin. But they know and they trust that God is in control. They trust that God will ultimately win, that he will triumph over his enemies. And so in that passage in Acts chapter 4, they quote this psalm. And they use it as really a prophecy for their situation. And when they quote this psalm in their prayer, what they're saying is there is is no authority except God. Not even Herod, not even Pontius Pilate, who they mentioned by name in the prayer. Those two rulers who were involved in sending Jesus to the cross. And the disciple in the early church, when they, when they pray this prayer, they're proclaiming God's sovereignty, even over Herod and Pontius Pilate. They mention by name the Gentiles, the people of Israel, all those, those groups really who were involved in Jesus' crucifixion. They read these as, as the kings who, it says, took their stand or were gathered together, as Psalm 2 says. Against the Lord's anointed. See Psalm 2 prophecies that these kings and these rulers, they will come together and they will try to fight against the anointed one of God. That is Jesus. That is the Christ. But they will not prevail. Because see, even when they killed him and they thought they had their victory, what they had really done is they had accomplished his victory. It is, as the psalmist says, the nations plot in vain. They plot uselessly. The the early church understood that the the role of these rulers and the role of these mobs in Jesus' death was was really just they were small cogs in God's grand wheel and his plan for salvation. I think of the words that Joseph told his brothers in Genesis 50-20. He says that, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. He tells his brothers, I know in your hearts you didn't realize it at the time, but when you threw me in a well and you stripped me and you sold me into slavery, God was actually using that for his greater good. And that's what the the early church says in Acts 4. They they tell Herod and they tell Pilate and they tell the Sanhedrin and they tell the Jewish council and they tell the angry mob, you meant it for evil that you would kill our leader, but really what you've done has only created good. You meant it for evil, but God has created it for good. 
In writing Psalm 2, David proclaims the power and the sovereignty of the Lord above all things. And when the disciples quote this psalm at the, in this juncture in the face of persecution, the first century church proclaims the same power. By using Psalm 2, they proclaim not that, that their trust, they proclaim that their trust is in God, not in the kings of the earth. They proclaim that history is not written by the victors, it is not written by the ruling class, not by the kings, not by the princes, not by the politicians, not by the Caesars, but history is written by God. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over all the nations, Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight 28 says. He is blessed and only He is sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 1 Timothy six fifteen. The use of Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4 is a a powerful example that teaches us of trust and boldness in the face of great danger. And above all things, reliance on the power of God. I encourage us to apply these principles to our own lives as we face challenges and as we go out into the world and share the gospel with others. If you're with us tonight and you have not heard what it means to hear the gospel, I would direct you to an article that has been on our bulletin for some week, but it says that one must hear the word according to Romans 10, 17, that one must believe according to John 3, 16 and Acts 16, 31, that one must turn away from a life of sin, Mark 6, 12, and confess that name above all names, Luke 12, 8 through 9. And then, of course, be baptized into Christ. Romans 6, 4, 1 Peter 3, 21, Acts 2, 37, and many, many others. It is a baptism where one is remiss of sins and it is key to becoming in Christ. If you're with us this evening and you have not made this decision to put on Christ in baptism, we'd love for you to come while we stand and while we sing. The church was looking for direction. They, well, the first thing they did was pray. And we see this all throughout Acts. In the, in the good times they prayed, in the bad times they prayed, in the easy times they prayed, in the hard times they prayed. And I, we talked about this a little bit this morning, but I really do not believe we can overstate the, the reliance that they have on, on being filled with the Spirit to guide them. And, and I think this is a lot of, this can be a confusing topic because it can get, it filled with a lot of flowery, maybe I would say spiritual language. It's hard to understand. When we talk about being filled with the Spirit, what does that mean to you? Like, how do you understand that in terms of in practice? What does that look like to you? Say it again. I'm sorry. Filled with the gospel. Filled with the gospel? Okay. Certainly having the knowledge to share it. We talked this morning about how we believe that uh, the word is inspired and that it was inspired through the work of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, that men were carried along. Uh, that's, that's kind of what we mean when we say God breathed and we say inspiration. We believe they were inspired by the Spirit to write the scriptures. And so one of the ways, and we mentioned this this morning, one of the ways we kind of... Uh, channel or, or fill ourselves with the Spirit would certainly be knowledge of the inspired Word. Absolutely. What else? If the Spirit is dwelling inside of us, we certainly feel overcome with the need to pray. I think it's the Spirit urging and guiding us in the right direction. 
Yeah, there's, a, there's another verse that talks about the Spirit, right? The Spirit that intercedes for us. And so certainly we know the Spirit is part of our ability to kind of commune with God in prayer. I'm surprised this is the first thing I thought of, but maybe if I had said what the fruit of the Spirit was, our minds would have gone that way. But when I think of being filled with the Spirit, that's the first thing I think of is, of course, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. One of those phrases I, I can't normally read. I have to sing it in the way we sung it when we were in Sunday school. We had a little song that went along with it. But certainly, Paul says, I think we get this, uh, I don't want to say confused, but maybe mixed up a little bit, that sometimes we think there is multiple fruits of the Spirit. But that, the verse actually there says the fruit, which just means like the working, the production, the fruit of the labor, if we can see it that way, of the Spirit that is in us is love, joy, peace, is those, those positive qualities. And so we could even say our, our attitude, our demeanor. Right, our, our joyfulness, our peacefulness. Our, and again, this brings us back to what we talked about this morning, that our, our love for one another, one of the passages we looked at, is certainly how the Spirit is evident in us. So I say that because, like I said, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe you have uh, some of the experience I do, but sometimes when we think of being filled with the Spirit, sometimes we think of snake handlers and rolling on the ground, you know. And I was like, okay, let's, 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 let's get that out of our minds. I'll... I'll tell you a little bit of a story since we do have a couple minutes here. Uh, a friend of mine, preacher, was at a, a congregation, I guess maybe in an area. I don't know if it was a particular congregation that had a little bit of a mm, energy-filled, soulful, spiritual, charismatic bent. I don't know how you want to call it. I don't know if they just had a bunch of old revivals back in that day or something. But before they got up to preach, they, they prayed on him. And a couple of the elders, they went and, and they laid hands on him before they prayed on him. Nothing wrong with any of this. Just to clarify, it happens in the Bible and the New Testament all the time. But he said they were praying, and they said, uh, I'm sure you guys, and I heard it said this morning, that uh, you know, give the preacher a ready recollection of his words. That's not what they prayed. They said, Lord, take the words right out of his mouth and put your words in him. And he said, I was sitting there saying, don't answer that prayer. Don't answer that prayer. Don't answer that prayer. <laughs> Lord, just take the words out of his mouth and, and give him your words, God. And only, and, uh, he just said, I was sitting there saying, don't answer that prayer, Lord. Please don't answer that prayer. And I get a little smile everybody every time somebody prays to preach that have a ready recollection. Because my memory is horrible, so I need all the help I can get. Um, but in all seriousness, one of, the, one of the best illustrations of the working of the Spirit I heard was a man. Uh, he described it in a commentary like a confluence of two rivers. And he talked about this specifically in the context of, of ministry, of preaching the word. But I think it applies just as easily to our everyday Christian lives. And he said when, when someone gets up to speak the word of God, and he, and, he, and he used scriptural references for this. He wasn't just kind of pulling it out of nowhere. But he said the, the speaker is prepared. They have knowledge of the scripture. They have knowledge of the word of God. And he said so there's this one river that is preparation. And there's another river that if he has spent the week in prayer with God, in time with God, in communion with God, in communion with the saints, meaning the church, and he is filled with the Spirit, well then these two rivers converge, and the result is, is the, the sermon that is delivered. The result is the presentation of the Word. And so he said the Spirit is not neglect of preparation. It's not the neglect of effort. It's not the neglect of service. You don't, you don't get up there and just start winging it, right? He said you don't just get up there and just start saying whatever comes to the top of your head. That's not being Spirit-filled. That's being uh, ill-prepared. I think he said lazy. But Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you saying that because all of us, I think, if asked, would say, you know, do, do you believe God has done stuff for you in your life? Well, you say, well, yeah, sure. You know, 
Would you believe God is doing stuff in your life right now? And you might think, well, uh, yeah, probably in some things. But we probably don't always feel that way. Maybe when we're praying, we're just not always aware of, like, you know, sometimes we know it up here, but we don't, we don't feel it in here, I guess is maybe how I would say it. We're not really aware of the, the emotion side of it or just the affection God has for us. And so certainly when we are filled with the Spirit, we would absolutely uh, understand God's love. Feel that. Feel the presence of God's love. Okay. Well, I wanted to throw that one around a little bit because I think that's one of those churchy expressions that can sometimes be hard to really wrap our brains around. You know, if someone says, oh, we were filled with the Spirit, it's like, what, is, what does that look like? You know, I've talked to people and say, well, being filled with the Spirit in Acts looks like the lame walking and the blind being healed. And well, we can't do that. So what are you talking about? And I talked about this a little bit this morning, but I'll go into detail and in kind of the specifics of it here. We mentioned how in Acts chapter 4, in verse 13, there's not only that powerful line where it says, and they recognized they had been with Jesus, meaning the, the scribes and the Sadducees recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. But verse 14 says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I wanted to say a little bit about this. Because a lot has been made and written and talked about how religion is on the decline, church is on the decline, people aren't as faithful as they used to be, people aren't as, you know, all this and that, and a lot of gloom and doom about it. And I think a little bit of that is a reputation that the church in some way, shape, or fashion, not our church, not our congregation, not our 100 people necessarily, but I think Christians, especially here, I think when we became the dominant religion, I think in a little bit we got lazy. And hear me out, because I don't, I don't want to upset anybody or make this personal in any way. But I think in, in a sense, we got lazy and we stopped realizing that we need to be constantly on guard against the attacks in the world. And we started saying, well, you know, I know everybody out there is a Christian. I know everybody out there believes in God. And we stopped realizing that every waking moment we are evangelizing one way or another. I mean, it's the classic old saying that always preach the gospel when necessary, use words, right? Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they will see you and glorify God on the day of judgment. And I think we got so used to everyone around us being full of faith that we stopped realizing we were supposed to be a constant demonstration of that faith. And I think we let our guard down a little bit. Because I, unfortunately, I'm sure you've seen the numbers on how young people are more likely to be faithless, they're more likely to fall away. Like I said, it's a lot of gloom and doom if you look into it. And unfortunately, when I talk to people, I say young people, but I'm really just talking about people my age and maybe a little bit younger, but... When I talk to younger people, I say, well, why don't you go to church? You know, do you believe in God? They say, oh, yeah, but, you know, a lot of them, yeah, I believe in God. But I'm just not into the whole church thing, you know. It's always stuff like that. I'm just, I'm just not sure if the church is, you know, I just don't think church is my thing. And we have a conversation, and I have to ask them why. And in almost every scenario, they have a story, or they have an account, or they have a personal thing that happened to them where they were very, very hurt by somebody in a church. And, you know, unfortunately, that's where it's not always somebody specifically kind of in our brotherhood will say, but so often, and we're just as good as anybody else, but we, we don't realize the impact we have, whether our actions are positive or negative. And you probably have heard the, the fun fact about a shark, that if a shark is not swimming, it's sinking. I would argue if we're not drawing people in, we're pushing people away. 
or we're keeping them out. And I say that in the context of Acts chapter 4. Because it wasn't really just the messages, not to diminish the power of the gospel at all, but it was not the message alone that caused the results that we see with Peter and John. It wasn't the message alone that made the elders astonished. It wasn't the message alone that had the whole town kind of listening to every word. But it's because everywhere they went, the work of God was undeniable in their lives. I mean, every so often in Acts, you see really a summary kind of like this one. In ours, it's verse 32 to 37, Acts 4, 32 to 37. But it's the same thing that you see at the end of Acts chapter 2 from verse 42 to 47. Acts 2.45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I can't remember if I preached it here, but I preached a sermon on this text one time. And I said, do you know how hard it is to have favor with all people? Like, I work every day to have favor with, like, most Truthfully, I shoot for about half. If I, can, if I can make about half the people I run into on any given day happy when they leave the interaction with me, I feel like I'm doing pretty good on the day, don't you? This seems like the world's full of miserable people sometimes. Maybe just my world, not yours, I don't know. But they had favor with everybody. I think too often we look at the, the church in Acts and we see, man, 3,000 people were added that day. God was adding to their number daily. Man, the, Acts, the, the church in Acts was just growing like crazy. What, what are they doing wrong? Or what are we doing wrong? What are they doing right? So I guarantee if, if the Dover Church of Christ found favor with every single person in Stewart County, we'd probably be building shopping, truthfully. We'd be busting. Absolutely. You go ahead and then I'll let you know. Now, in the church, the back seat, just as important as the front seat. We go to making a difference. Uh, some people it's hard to get along with, yeah. But we still love you. Uh, I wouldn't talk about you. Oh, man. No, everybody's important in the church. We sing, and people say, well, I can't teach or do anything like that. You, you realize that every time you sing a song, singing, that's true. I was questioning that one morning, a statement I made. I stand up here preaching or teaching a class. And a guy said, what do you mean teaching? And I didn't turn the song. I told you led the other night. Watch and watch away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There you go. That's teaching. Watch and make me whole again. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So every time we can sing a song, we're teaching. Everybody has a part to do in the church. Absolutely. They might not stand up and teach a class, but they can stand and teach Absolutely. Word of God by singing. Certainly. Certainly. Mm-hmm. But they, but having favor with all men at that time was 
Absolutely. Yeah. But that's a good point. If someone's trying to put you dead, you're probably not finding too much favor with them. Yeah. So I think there's, there's two ways I would go with that one on one. You make a good point that sometimes, and this is a little bit of what Wilton was saying, sometimes it's hard enough to have favor with all the people in the church, let alone all the people outside of it. I've never struggled with it, but people tell me. I, I always have loved everybody in the entire congregation. You, Teddy Bear. <laughs> but people tell me that sometimes it's hard not to have favor with just the church. But I would, I would counter with, uh, I would counter with even Paul's. Uh, man, I cannot remember which letter it is, but he says even when he's in chains, really it's to the benefit because he says the soldiers that are with him have heard the gospel. And so I would say, in a way, I think it is possible to even seek to have a good reputation with those who are persecuting you. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, and that is what we see. <laughs> yeah. When you bring up a good point that loving, loving even the people who are fighting against you is not always easy, and it will, it will not always be popular. It will not always be popular. But if we, we see that lived out in Jesus' ministry too, that what happened? They came to him and they said, "Why are you hanging out with tax collectors and scribes? You know, sinners. Why are you doing this and this? Why are you letting them do this on the Sabbath?" We we make a lot of. Thinking of, you know, how we sit and the order we do things and we, we go to great lengths to make sure we're patterning the New Testament church in some areas, but I feel like we completely ignore it in others. We'll come and we gather, we'll say, well, we've got to be like this and it has to be like this and we have to do it in this manner and it has to be this way and, and as we should, as we absolutely should. But I think sometimes what we don't realize is that uh, modeling the New Testament church happens outside of Sunday morning and Sunday night and outside of Wednesday night. But we model the New Testament church truly when we are on display in the world. And so when I think of the success that the early church had, it's kind of like Sandy says, because they were not part-time disciples. They understood that they carried that banner of Jesus with them everywhere. And people were amazed by the radical love for one another and their, their attitudes in the world. And you look at just how bad they wanted it, because I think maybe Rhonda talked about it a while ago, that, you know, they were under persecution, you know, and here, you know, the, the idea of Jesus was such an affront to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their way of life, and it was, a, you know, it affected their belief and their economic systems, and, and you think about, you know, they, they, they're, they're having this prayer meeting for, for these guys, you know, and then they have to, you know, they, they pray afterwards and, you know, and you don't speak the name of Jesus again, and, you know, and whether I should serve man or God, I, I choose to serve God, you know, you can't tell me not to say Jesus. You yeah. know, think about how bad they wanted it. And, and I'm just looking in the, in the mirror at myself here, but, you know, I mean, do, do I measure up to that level of desire mm. to pursue the faith, you know, because we talked about, you know, what what is being filled with the Holy Spirit look like, and I, I like I like that you brought out the fruits of the Spirit because, you know, when they 
in, in chapter 6 when they say, you know, go find seven men full of the Holy Spirit. Mm. I agree with, with, with Louise that, you know, you need, you, you need to be filled with the gospel, but you also, your life needs to be filled with the replication of that gospel in an outward example like, you, like you're talking about. And, and, you know, and we, are we living a life that is an outward example like those in the first century? Because mm-hmm. I've never been beaten for my faith. I, somebody told me I'm not interested, and, and I was crushed, you know, and, 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 I, and I pouted and went on, you know, but I've never been beaten for my faith. I've never, I've never been put on trial for my faith, and, and they wanted it that bad. And, you know, and we talk about how we, we, we follow the example of the New Testament church, and I hope that none of us ever are persecuted, but I think that we do need that level of desire. And yeah. if we have that level of desire, then we can do great things. And so uh, we need to be careful not to become just a religious worship society and, and be truly the church that Jesus died for. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll say one more thing off of what you said, and then I'll wrap up because I, I did want to mention, I can't remember if I said this off the top, but uh, uh, several, a few weeks ago now, I said I wanted us to divide a little more time to prayer on Sunday nights uh, just because we're, we're talking about discernment and we're talking about figuring out the will of God and we're, we've been talking about leadership and sort of navigating this period that we're in. And so I want to make sure we leave time for that uh, here at the end. So I, I do want to say one more thing on um, what Van said and then we'll wrap towards the close here. Now, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. In it, Even though we're not persecuted, how many of us have turned on the news and seen... In some way or another, whether it's this side or it's that side, Christianity being painted as this awful thing. You know, you, you turn on the news and what you see is, and, and I get that on one hand, I think there's absolutely a propaganda against Christians going on out there. But I'll tell you, I talk to people who, believe, who have experienced it. They didn't just watch it on the news. They, they experienced, they encountered in their lives that somebody taught them that Christians hate people. And it, and it, and it, I, seriously, I can't tell you how much it crushes my soul. And I think there's two ways we can react to that as the church. We can say, well, you know what? I'm just not going to deal with those people. I just can't believe they think that they're just apostate. They're just alien sinners. There's nothing I can do with those people. Or I think you can say, how can I live the rest of my life that I might change that person's mind? How much of a radically loving and caring person can I be in the face of everything life has to throw at me? So that one more person who used to think we stood for hate believes that we stand for a gospel that is true and a gospel that brings abundant life. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I appreciate you saying that because that gives me an opportunity to, to, to just completely and totally agree. Um, if, almost every time, as you guys know, most of our family uh, lives in either Oklahoma or Texas. And as many of you know who have grandkids of your own, it's very hard to be about four or five states away from grandkids. And 
And every time we talk to him, he's like, oh, when are you guys coming home? You know, coming home for Thanksgiving. Are you coming home for Christmas? Are you coming home over spring break? Are you coming home over the summer? And I think it's really, really hard for them. But really, and I'm not just saying this. I wouldn't be saying if it weren't true. I cannot think of one time someone has come and they have not said, I, I get why you're there. They said, when we're there and we visit, they said, man, you, you guys are really part of a special church there. They said, when we come and they visit and they, they, they hang out with us and they spend time with you guys in the services and afterwards or luncheons or time here today, they say, I get why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, that's awesome. Because it, it is, I don't know about you guys, but it, it wasn't that long ago that I was in high school. I know what it's like to walk into a building full of people who are judging everything you're doing. <laughs> We're judging everything from the way you're walking to what you're wearing. And, and I hope you're right, Luis. And I'm not only that one person, but I, I pray dearly that everybody who walks in the door here feels that way. Because I believe it's true as well. We'll go ahead and close in uh, a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for the church here, uh, for the things we mentioned, for the, the things that make us a spirit-filled church. I know we talk so often about the things that we're not and the things that we're lacking and the things that we're weak in, and I, I thank you for this opportunity for us to reflect and remember and, and not necessarily pat ourselves on the back so much as edify one another, build each other up, because that is what you called us to do. And so I thank you. Uh, for the people here who have made this church spirit-filled, who have made this church a, a blessing to those who walk in the door, the members and the visitors, the, the newcomers and the oldcomers, front row, back row, aisle or window. I, I thank you that those people who, who see us, who make the church the church. And I pray that all of us can strive to that, that standard of being spirit-filled that you called us to all the time. I know we're humans and I know we make mistakes, but I pray that, that everybody... Everybody who walks through those doors knows and sees that, that the Dover Church of Christ is a spirit-filled church. I pray this, God, even in our time of, as we've talked about, just transition and in this time of, of praying for, for leadership, praying for our church to kind of be in that biblical pattern that you call us to be. And I pray not just that, that we will be fully aligned with your will, but I pray that you will... You will mold our hearts and our minds until that comes because we, we know what your will is, God, but we also know that you are in control. And so we understand that everything happens in your time and in your way. And so we pray that we know, we know that no matter what, your will will be done. And we pray that we are a part of it. We pray that you will allow us to be a part of doing your will in the church and in the world. I pray, God, right now for, um, we have some... Some who are sick, some who are getting older, some who are shut in, some who are in nursing homes, some who are just getting to where they can't get around where they used to. And so we have all these, these prayer requests and these needs and these, these medical things that are afflicting them and, and beginning to harp and, uh, hang on them in their old age. And I pray for all of them right now, God, that if it is your will, they will be healed. And if it is not, they will be comforted. I pray for our youth because I understand the youth are our future. And it is... It is so precious that each little one comes to a knowledge of you, God. And I pray that our families and our church, our church family, will raise them up in the way that they ought to go and raise them up in a knowledge of you, God. Always when we pray, God, we're, we're thankful for all of our blessings and we, we pray that you guide us, you keep us from that temptation, but more importantly, that you give us the boldness 
to face that temptation. You give us the boldness to preach the gospel even in persecution, even when the, the people on the news are saying mean things about us, even when our neighbors are saying mean things about us, even when the people at the grocery store don't want to make eye contact with us, God. I pray that you will give us the spirit of Jesus to love them, to love them no matter how they're treated so that the gospel can be proclaimed. Because everything we do, it's not for our sake, God. It's for yours. It's for that mission that you've entrusted to us to be your church. We thank you so much for your son who died on the cross for our sins. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.